as we've worked our way through this series, uh, James has painted for us a very tangible picture of what real faith looks like, hasn't he? He's encouraged us to accept the word planted in us, but not only that, to do what it says. Real faith, he says, grows through trials. It resists temptation. It doesn't show favoritism. It is generous and compassionate to the poor. And it is evidenced by what it produces, both in word and in deed. And so having come this far today, it is time for a bit of a test, an exam of sorts. Now, I know exams aren't everybody's favourite thing, but having gone this far, James sets a little bit of a test for his audience. And you don't need to panic because there's only one question um, and you're going to do the self-assessment yourself. You will mark your own exam today. And no one else is going to know how you answered, only you. So, are you ready for a little exam? <laughs> All right, I promised there would only be one question and here it is. Who is wise and understanding among you? So what's your first reaction to that question? Are you thinking, you know what? I think I am wise and understanding. Is that you? And if not, is there someone else here, anyone else in the room, who you can point to and say, yes, I think that person is wise and understanding. And I hope there are some people here, I hope there's many people here that we could point to because it's a pretty sad state of affairs if there's no one with any wisdom in our churches. Churches desperately need people with wisdom. <laughs> so, perhaps this is not an easy question for you to answer straight off the top of your head. Perhaps you might need some criteria to help you define and measure wisdom and understanding. If that sounds like you, then you'll be pleased to know that today's exam is an open book exam. So if you would open your Bibles to James, chapter 3, verses 13 to 18, you will find there the question for today's exam posed, and below it you will find all the criteria conveniently provided to help you make your assessment. So let us begin. Who then is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbour bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. For such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual and demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. 
But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Now, the tradition of thought about wisdom was very strong in ancient Israel. It can be seen in what we call the wisdom literature. And some of you will be familiar with the books of the Bible such as Job and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. They're what we call wisdom literature. But there'll be other parts of the wisdom literature that you're less familiar with, writings that didn't make it into our Bibles but that are an accepted part of the Catholic canon and what we call the Apocrypha, books such as Syrac or the Wisdom of Solomon. And then there is a whole suite of other Jewish apocalyptic literature such as One Enoch. These are all parts of what we call the Wisdom writings. And in much of this literature, wisdom is personified. And you can see that in Proverbs, one that you will be familiar with. In Proverbs chapter 8, wisdom is personified as a beautiful young woman who calls out to mankind to follow her. She is said to exist before the creation of the world, to dwell with God, to assist with his work of creation and to be a source of life. And when we move across to the New Testament, you'll see uh, in the Gospel of John, John draws heavily on this wisdom tradition when he describes Jesus as the Word. So I want you to listen as I read John 1, chapter, uh, 1 to 5, and see if you can identify those characteristics of wisdom that are up on the screen in the words of John's description of Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It's pretty easy to match up what's up there with what has been written in the Gospel of John describing Jesus as a personification of wisdom. In fact, if you go further through the Gospel of John, all of the characteristics of Jesus that are in John's Gospel recorded in those I am sayings, I am the bread of the life, the light of the world, the door, the life, the true vine. All of these have already been attributed to wisdom in the various wisdom literature that we're discussing. And the Apostle Paul is even more direct uh, in some of what he says. So 1 Corinthians 1, 23 to 24 but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God 
and the wisdom of God. And again, in 1 Corinthians 30, it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. So why does any of this matter? Well, it matters because this is the mindset and the thinking of the time out of which James's question arises. Underlying his question is the general understanding that wisdom is the personification of the inherent attributes of God. And in addition, there appears to be at least a developing school of thought which, seeing those attributes personified in Jesus, concludes that just as wisdom was part of the divine identity of God, so too must Jesus be. And therefore, it follows for us that as we become more like Christ, as we grow closer to him in our relationship with him, so we too must be growing in wisdom. By contrast, wisdom in our society today has become a bit of a lacklustre word. Its meaning is almost synonymous with intelligence. Perhaps at best, it's intelligence combined with a bit of experience. And that's not what James is talking about. The ancient Greeks, they also had a, a name for wisdom. They called her Sophia. And even the pagan Greeks regarded her as special. For Sophia encompassed the highest order of wisdom, knowledge and ability. And many regarded her as something that pertained to the gods. By contrast, philosophia, and you can tell which Australian or English word we get from philosophia, means literally a friend of wisdom. And so it is the love or pursuit of wisdom. Philosophia was knowing, or it became used colloquially for someone who knew that they could debate or dispute. They had that ability to argue their point. But Sophia remained wisdom of a higher kind of order. And it had nothing to do with anybody's intelligence or level of education, and it was available in equal measure to anybody who needed it. And it begins with the fear or the reverent awe of the Lord, as we're told in Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So when James asks, who among you has this? He's asking a much deeper question than what we might imagine. He's not asking, who's the smartest one among you? So with all of that in mind, let's begin the exam. For James leaves us in no doubt as to how we should assess ourselves in order to answer this question. Who is wise 
and understanding among you? What is the evidence of wisdom and understanding? Well, James says it will show in a good life or godly life and in deeds done in humility. That's what comes from godly wisdom. Now, if you're reading one of the older versions here, you might read, Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him shew out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. Now, if that's what yours says, don't get confused because the word conversation used there is a 17th century word which has completely fallen out of fashion. It does not mean conversation as we use the word, speaking. It means behaviour. And that can include speech, but it's only one part of it. So what James is saying here is that it's not merely good enough to do good works. Sure, our faith must be evidenced by our good works, but anyone can do good works. We all know that. Good works are not the exclusive reign of Christians. In fact, out in the community there, you'll see many non-Christians doing some great works of charity. Our works must be preceded by a blameless lifestyle. What we do must be backed up by who we are. Or, as James said, way back in chapter 1, and you'll see as we go through that much of this passage is revision on everything that he's talked about so far. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Not just to look after widows and orphans, not just to keep oneself from being pure, or from being polluted, sorry. Now, some of us are natural doers. We like to busy ourselves, helping others and supporting this cause or that. And those type of people need to be careful not to let our lifestyle betray the witness of our good deeds. Are we grumpy at home? Perhaps we're intolerant of others that don't share our enthusiasm or our same ideas. Do we have a secret bad habit that we like to indulge in occasionally when no one else sees? Do we neglect our time with God? Are we let down by our tongue? Those of us who are natural doers need to be careful to ensure that our good deeds are born out of a godly lifestyle. Others like to take the moral high ground. They live an exemplary, highly disciplined life. They might even have managed to rein in their temper and take control of their tongue. Also insufficient, says James. Out of that must come good deeds. Look after orphans and widows in distress and keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Blameless, godly lifestyle and good deeds. It's not either or, it's both. But not only must our works be preceded by a lifestyle of that is blameless, they must be done in the humility that comes from wisdom. Or some versions have deeds in the gentleness of wisdom or meekness of wisdom. And this word that is variously translated as humility or gentleness or meekness is a word that back then was used to describe a high-spirited horse 
that had been brought under control. Meekness does not equal weakness. It's still the same horse with the same strength and power, but it has been made submissive and it now carries its strength and power with meekness and gentleness. That, says James, is the evidence of wisdom from above. Good deeds done in humility, born out of a blameless lifestyle. But there's a second kind of wisdom that James speaks about and it is evidenced by bitter envy and selfish ambition. Now when I think of envy, I think nice car, nice house, nice holiday, they've got that, I might want that, that's envy to me. But that's not quite the sense of the word that's used here. The word that is used is zelos in the Greek, from which we get the word zeal. And zeal is not necessarily a bad thing, is it? We're told in other parts of the Bible that we should be zealous for the Lord. It's the bitter part that makes this zeal unpalatable in the Christian community. This is the kind of zeal that is often driven by selfish motives and is critical of others. It's the kind of zeal that sees Christians align themselves into factions with all the wrong kinds of motives and methods to push for their own point of view. It's the kind of zeal that sees the persecuted Christians of James's time tempted to desert the faith and join violent revolutionary groups to seek justice. It's the kind of zeal that sees Christians of our time tempted to desert the faith, to align themselves with political parties or social action groups to bring about change. To this bitter zeal, James adds another word, which is translated here as selfish ambition. Now, historically, the word that was used, erethia, is a political word, comes out of political language, and it means a self-seeking pursuit of office by unfair means. So evidently, there were some in the church at that time who took pride in their wisdom and their understanding and yet by their zealous, contentious, self-seeking, bitter partisanship, their actions were about as far removed from the gentleness, meekness or humility that James tells us to aspire for as anyone can be. So, how did you fare against the evidence of wisdom? To what extent have you been able to keep yourself unpolluted by the world? To what extent can your lifestyle be called blameless? Which good deeds can you point to? Could you be routinely described as humble, meek and gentle? Now James then proceeds to list some of the characteristics of the two types of wisdom that he's talking about. Wisdom from above is first of all pure or without blame. It is spotless. It is peace-loving 
gentle, not argumentative or short-tempered. Both of these two characteristics, purity and peace-loving, stand in stark contrast to the disorder and selfish ambition described from the other type of wisdom. It is considerate. A person exhibiting this kind of wisdom would be willing to forego their own rights for a higher ideal. It is submissive, not in the sense of being weak, but in the sense of being willing to defer to others in matters that don't involve moral or theological principles. It's the type of wisdom that Abraham exhibited when he deferred to Lot. Remember when their flocks had grown too large and Abraham allowed Lot to take his choice of the land and, and Lot chose the best land and uh, Abraham was willing to defer to him. It's also um, the type of wisdom that Jesus exhibited when he went to the cross. Wisdom from above is full of mercy. Now mercy is not just a benevolent feeling. It's not feeling sorry for someone. It's an action word. And it's a word that is counterintuitive to most human beings. When we are wronged, we naturally want justice or revenge. Mercy does the opposite. It treats someone tenderly and with compassion even when they don't deserve it. For the Christian, James says, extending mercy is not something we do occasionally. It is something that should be ever-present and always seen. He describes this kind of wisdom as being full of mercy, not just occasionally having mercy. Likewise, wisdom from above is full of good fruit, which James links to mercy. Not just occasionally producing good fruit, wisdom from above should be full of good fruit. It should be easy for others to see. And of course, we're reminded of the words of Jesus that a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. So we need to ask ourselves, what kind of tree are we? Wisdom from above is also impartial, doesn't make distinctions, it doesn't show favouritism. You'll remember that way back from chapter 2. We are to embrace all people, regardless of their financial, cultural or social status. And the final characteristic of this wisdom, says James, is that it must be sincere. And the Greek word here is very illustrative. The word translated as sincere is anupokritos, which is the negative form of a related word, hypokrisis. And I think you can probably guess what the English word is there. Now this word, hypokrisis, from which we get hypocrite, is a word used to describe Greek stage actors. And so when they were doing their plays, often one person would play many parts and that person would run out behind the stage and grab a different mask and put that mask, hold it up over their face for whatever character they were playing. And there's some examples of some of the masks up on the screen there. You've got surprised, happy, angry, confused, scared. Whatever they needed, they put the mask up over their face. And so when James uses this word, what he's telling us is that all masks are to be off 
in the Christian life. What you get, or what you see, and what you get should be exactly the same thing. There shouldn't be one mask for church and mixing with Christians and another mask for work and another mask for home. What you see and what you get should be the same. By contrast then, the other kind of wisdom, the worldly sort of wisdom, is described as arrogant or boasting. It's the kind of wisdom that jockeys for position and lords it over others and it is dishonest. Specifically, it denies the truth. And God's revealed truth is absolute and is unchanging. Oh, but times are changing, you say. The church has to adjust. James says, no, God's truth is absolute. It doesn't change with times, beliefs or lifestyle. That sort of thinking belongs to this world. This second kind of wisdom is described as earthly in the sense that earthly things are temporary and imperfect. It is described as unspiritual, more concerned with human reasoning and, and feelings than the things of God. And it is even described as of the devil. Not so much because it comes directly from the devil himself, but because it is the type of wisdom that the devil would approve of. So, another checklist for you. How do you score against these characteristics of godly wisdom? To what extent would you say you are morally blameless? Are your relationships characterised by peace? Or is there strain in your relationships? Are there people that you will not talk to because you harbour some sort of grudge against them? Or do people avoid you at times because they're scared of what your reaction might be? Are you willing to forego your own personal rights for a higher ideal? Are you willing to defer to others on issues that don't involve those moral or theological principles? Are you full of mercy or perhaps just a little bit merciful sometimes, occasionally when it suits you? Are good fruits abundantly plentiful in your life? Do you make distinctions or show favouritism? Are you sincere or do you have different masks depending on the company you're keeping at the time? It is a sobering checklist. Who is wise and understanding among you? Now James in this short passage today has sought to make something which I think is quite intangible, wisdom, tangible for us. And he's shown us what to look like in the tangible evidence of its presence and he's described for us many of its characteristics. And all of us can self-assess against these measures. But some of us will do it with a greater degree of honesty than others will. But perhaps the best measure of wisdom, I think, lies in its results because they are undeniable. Wisdom, it would seem to me, is like the wind, somewhat intangible, yet its results are undeniable. 
On a sticky hot day, there's nothing better than a cool breeze. It's why we all love to flock to the beach in summer, because of the cool sea breeze. And it's why those of us without effective air conditioning in our homes will continually ask one another, when's the cool change coming after a string of 40 degree days when our homes feel like an oven? And when it arrives, we run around opening doors and windows to let the cool breeze through. And it brings relief and it energises and tensions dissipate and everyone feels a little bit more relaxed. It makes you feel a little bit like this. Or sometimes even like this. We welcome this kind of wind. But there's another kind of wind that strikes fear into all in its path. And we can see it coming on a satellite image. This particular one we named Tracy. And she arrived in Darwin on Christmas Day in 1974. And that kind of wind leaves nothing in its wake but brokenness, destruction, pain, sadness, despair and loss. And it's the same with fire. There's the cosy campfire kind of fire that we all love. It conjures up in our mind images of good times, good friends, family memories, rosy cheeks and a warm glow. And then there's the raging inferno kind of fire, such as struck Marysville on the 7th of February 2009, leaving in its wake brokenness, destruction, pain, sadness, despair and loss. So how have you gone this morning as we've attempted to assess ourselves against James's characteristics of wisdom. It's difficult for us to be objective and assess ourselves as things really are, not as how we wish they would be in our lives. And as I went through this exercise, it struck me that there's really only two ways to get an honest assessment. The first is to ask someone else. And depending on their level of honesty, you might get an honest answer. But not many of us are brave enough to ask someone else for a really honest assessment of ourselves. And so the second way to get a really honest assessment comes not from looking inwardly, but from looking outward, looking around you or behind you to see what is left in your wake. For just as you can tell what kind of wind or what kind of fire has gone through by what it has left in its wake, so too you can tell what kind of wisdom a person is exercising by examining what is left in their wake. Do you see unity and harmony around you? Or is it a picture of disunity and discontent? Do you contribute to long-standing supportive relationships or do you leave a trail of broken relationships in your wake? Have you been a long-time member of the teams you are part of? Or are you constantly moving on, dissatisfied? Do you build others up? Or do you undermine them? 
Worldly wisdom, says James, leaves in its wake disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom which comes from above produces the opposite outcome, peace, which is order, and righteousness, which is every good and pleasing practice to God. Peacemakers, says James, who sow in peace, raise a harvest of righteousness. So, how did you go? Did you identify any areas of concern? Are you lacking in wisdom? If so, there's good news. And the good news is that whatever you scored on that little self-assessment doesn't have to remain your score for life. Because if we go right back to chapter 1, one of the very first things that James said to the little group to whom he was preaching, James 1, 5 to 6, If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But, says James, let him ask in faith with no doubting. True wisdom is a gift of God, and there is nothing you need do but ask. Proverbs 2, 6, For the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. May he grant us all his perfect wisdom. Amen.